This podcast is brought to you by the Sydney Institute for Psychoanalysis. If you'd like to hear more audio lectures like this, head to our website, sydneypsychoanalysis.asn.au. The next event is in March 2014, Engaging with Psychoanalytic Ideas and Concepts, starting with a three-part lecture series presented by Dr. Louise Braddock, entitled A Conversation Between Philosophy and Psychoanalysis. There's more information and registration forms online at sydneypsychoanalysis.asn.au. Meet like-minded people and participate in the discussion. We hope to see you there. And now, Unbearable Memory by Avril Alba. This is from a book that was written about a set of interviews that were undertaken in 1946 in the displaced person camps in Europe by a man named David Boder, Dr David Boder, who has been popularised recently through Elliot Perlman's book The Street Sweeper, where he becomes Henry Border. But da- uh, David Boder was a real person. He was a psychologist and he went to Europe in 1946 to tape in, with what was then cutting-edge technology the first testimonies. Right? There are a lot of people that were recording testimony in terms of just taking it down as documents, right? taking down scripted versions, but he was the first to tape it. And this is, a, I think, a rather telling excerpt. Mon Bloom, a survivor, Kim Woman. Yes, I want to ask you a question. You're a professor of psychology. Yes, please speak louder. Are psychologists so far advanced that they really know human nature so well? Do they really have a picture of man's various qualities? Do they really understand the human qualities so well? Absolutely no. You are entirely right. I didn't ask you simply because I wanted to know, because I know this already. I just wanted to hear it from you. After all that I've seen, I know that we know nothing yet. This is 1946 in the displaced persons camps of Europe. And this is the beginning of testimony. So Boda's collection is one collection, and I'm going to talk about it in more detail in just a moment. But there are a few different kinds of testimony collections, and we're going to explore some of them together. Um, I've limited the amount that that we're going to look at because obviously we are limited by time. But testimony spans a, a broad range of genres and is used in a variety of ways. So it was used immediately in the DP camps to record to, in a sense, give a given oral history, so to speak. It was then used next in terms of legal proceedings in courtrooms, and that's the first clip that I'm going to show you when we talk about the Eichmann trial in in just a moment. So using survivor testimony as a means of bringing this material into a legal setting. Then there started to be archival collections. The two most famous, and uh, I've done them here in uh, chronological order, the first was the Fortinoff Uh, archive at Yale University which was one that has been utilised a lot particularly by scholars in um, sort of literary scholars who are interested in oral testimonies literature as well and then the Shoah Foundation which many people may know was founded by Steven Spielberg after he undertook Schindler's List. He decided he wanted to preserve the record, the survivors' voices. They took 52,000 survivor testimonies in a variety of countries, a variety of languages, both Jewish and non-Jewish survivors. 
um, spoke for these testimonies. And this museum holds the Australian testimonies, i.e. testimonies given by survivors who came to Australia. But the 52,000 eventually will be... They, they have plans to put it all online. Whether that will happen, uh, we don't know. But, but they certainly are available for research purposes. Film. The last clip that I'm going to end with comes from Cloud Landsman's Shoah. Some of you may be aware of this documentary. I'm going to talk more about it when I introduce that excerpt. But testimony has been used more and more and more in film, not simply as film, but as a basis for film as well. So many of you may have seen the film Defiance a few years ago. This is based on the story of the Bielski brothers, who were partisans and survived and basically kept alive over a 1,000 people in in the forests uh, in Belarusia, and their stories, their oral testimonies became the basis for that film. So testimony is sort of coming to the fore in that way, and uh, dare I say it, even historians, I'll talk more about this in just a minute, even historians are now using testimony, and that's, that's been quite a radical shift in the historiography of the Holocaust as well. And then finally, in terms of education, memorials, museums, education centres, testimony, more and more and more is being used uh, as a way of, in a sense, bringing people into the experience from a different perspective. So, in a sense, that's a very potted history of testimony. You begin very close to the war. As you get to the archival collections, you're talking about the the early 80s in terms of the Fortinoff and then the Shoah Foundation, the early 90s and through to the to the um, the beginning of this millennium. Cloud Landsman's film is now about 25 years old and then museums and memorials really in the last 20 to 30 years have both been developed. This museum is 21 years old this, this year right? and that's a sort of average in terms of Holocaust museums and memorials. Okay. So now I want to talk a little bit about reasons why testimony was undertaken. And I'm going to start with Boda, but I'm going to, in a sense, use him as a launching off point. So Boda, actually, the, the wonderful thing about Boda in the book that has been written on him and the history of what he did, the scholar who actually wrote that book was in Sydney for the past two weeks. He's on a plane back to Jerusalem right now, so he couldn't be here this evening. But Dr. Alan Rosen wrote a book called The Wonder of Their Voices, and it's about the 1946 uh, Boda interviews and he goes through Boda's paper and Boda gives very specific reasons as to why he decided to do this and they are as follows to preserve an authentic record of wartime suffering now this um, this is this links back to my comment about historians Boda felt that what was an authentic record an authentic record was the experience of the victim right the experience of the person who goes through um, through the trauma Historians, by and large, did not take that perspective. Those of you who've read histories of the Holocaust, and if you read, there is now, of course, a history of the histories, so to speak, right? A historiography has emerged of the Holocaust. We'll know that the early testimonies, the uh, early testimonies, the early histories, the two great histories were written by Raoul Hilberg and Lucy Davidovich, two great historians in their own right who decided to take on uh, this challenge of writing a comprehensive history of the Holocaust. Hilberg, in particular, refused to use testimony. Why? Because it is unreliable. Now, that's something I think we should be thinking about. What does he mean by that? Right? From a historian's perspective, I think it's quite clear. Hilberg was obsessed with the document. Right? The document is what tells us about history. 
But that meant that what he wrote, in essence, was a perpetrator history. It's a magnificent history. It's an extraordinary history, and if you, it's still a classic. It's still something I make my students read. But it is a perpetrator history. What Boda was saying is history is what we now call history from below. Right? The idea that history is not made by those who issue the orders, but history is experienced by by those whom it it affects. And it's I think it's really telling that Yehuda Bauer, who is the doyen of um, really of Holocaust history now, very elderly now, and lives in Jerusalem, um, but really is still the authority, has stopped writing perpetrator history. And when in his last visit to Australia, he explicitly said in a lecture that I heard him give, "I'm no longer interested." in what the Nazis did. I want to know what the Jews did. What, how did they respond? Right? What did it mean for them? And the, why did a community living 20 kilometres from another community respond in such different ways? And that ended up with a magnificent book that he wrote a few years ago called The Death of the Shtetl, and I, I, I highly recommend it. But I think it's telling that someone like Bauer, who spent his entire life in the archives with the documents, came to that in, in his sort of final great work. Well, maybe it's not. I hope it's not his final, but he says it. it's his final. Okay. So he wants to do something different. He thinks testimony can do something different. He has a professional interest as a, psychology, as a psychologist in the impact of extreme suffering on personality. And what that was about for Boda, and I don't, you know, I, obviously I don't speak uh, as a psychologist tonight, but from what I understand reading his history, that meant that he was very interested in, the, in looking at language and how people use language to express trauma or how trauma became expressed in their language. And that was why he wanted to record Right? So it wasn't, in a sense, recording for recording's sake. He wanted that inflection. And for those of you who'd like to hear some of these testimonies, I hope I've put the link up there. Yes, I have. Um, they are online. There's a, there's a, you can either like, copy that down, but just Google in Voices of the Holocaust. And what is extraordinary, of course, is that when we think of survivor testimony, we think of old voices. These are young voices. Right? Because if you survived a Nazi camp, you were young at the time, right? Most of the elderly did not survive. They didn't even survive the selection, right? So you were young. And it's, it's extraordinary. I, I would encourage you to do it, to hear, um, to hear these voices from 1946. Okay. The other reason he gives to increase the knowledge of a post-war American public who knew little about what happened to the victims in the ghetto and in the concentration camps. Now this, again, I'm going to link back to in my, in my next slide, but this brings up the whole topic that um, was written about so eloquently by the late Ruth Weinrobe, who many of you may know and may have read in the Sydney Morning Herald, but also through her other work. She wrote a book called The Silence, How Tragedy Shapes Talk. And there's a constant and ongoing debate in Holocaust scholarship as to when do people start to break the silence. And I think what's becoming more and more evident is that it depends on what silence you're talking about. Because clearly there was no silence from Boda. There was no silence from those who wrote what we call Yiska books, right, which, were, uh, which means a remembrance book. So those who searched out what happened to their village, their town, and wrote it in books. I recently found my, my father was a survivor from a town called Rovno, and I found it online, 600 pages about Rovno. That is not a silence, right? So there were people that were doing this. But there is different, I guess there's different levels of silence, right? And there's certainly families that I know that I've spoken with and, and I guess in a sense of experience myself, where there's a silence within the family, right? And it 
things don't get spoken about, yet the presence of the tragedy, the presence of the past somehow does impede, does become part of <coughs> the family experience. So what the silence is and how, how it works is not simply, I think, a case of no one spoke, someone spoke, and then all of a sudden you have you know, Schindler's List. Right? I'm not being facetious, but it's, you know, that, that is often, often the chronology given by um, historians is no one speaks, there's a shutdown, no one wants to listen, 60, 61, Eichmann trial, watershed moment, people start talking, people start listening, and then basically as you move through into the 80s the 90s and the, the West, so to speak, becomes more tolerant of ethnic identity and you get the sort of formation of identity politics that people feel safer in terms of expressing things like the Jewishness of their identity as survivors rather than I lived through the Second World War, if you see what I mean. So I was a victim of the Holocaust rather than I was a refugee from the Second World War. So I don't think it's as simple as that. I don't think anyone that's doing research in the area at the moment thinks it's as simple as that. Um, but silence itself continues to be a really perplexing and complex issue that I think testimony, again, has a lot, a lot to, to tell us about in terms of that. And then finally, and this I think is one of the, I won't spend too long, but for me as a historian, I think this is one of the most interesting points, and uh, is that he hoped that these DP stories could be effective in advocating on their behalf for immigration to America. Right? And we, again, you know, the Holocaust, of course, has its own historical circumstance and the migration that follows and the migration restrictions that followed. But the resonance of what happened in that moment, in that historical moment, still comes back to us today. And you will see time and time and time again, I don't know if you noticed, but with the, the tragedy at Christmas Island, the commentary often in the media was invoking the Holocaust. If we are still doing this kind of thing today, why do we not relate it to what happened at that time? In other words, if more were allowed in, less would have perished in Hitler's death camps. Right? So it's, and, I, and it's not historically, of course, people always get a bit upset because it's never going to be an exact analogy because that's just not, thankfully, that's not the way history works. But it's something that I think was, there's a term that was captured by a, an American sociologist, Jeffrey Alexander, that I think is beautifully describes what happens. It's something called symbolic extension, right? That one historical event begs, if you like, a, a, a reference when thinking about another. Right, that it, it evokes it in your mind. And I think the Holocaust in many ways has become that event. Right? It's become that event that then comes up time and time and time again when we face crises in, in the present. Thanks for listening. To download the full talk, visit us online at sydneypsychoanalysis.asn.au.